You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to 2018, and welcome to yet another year for the movie Graveyard. That's why we just keep rolling right along, changing formats, changing everything. But we, you know, we change with the times here. We evolve, we grow. But at the same time, we don't change or evolve that fast because we're back in 2018 and we're covering yet another film from the 1980s. But there's a very good reason why we're covering that, and we'll get to that in a second. But first of all, I want to say thank you so much for joining me to my faithful movie grave digger co-worker, Trev 3K. Trev, what's going on, man? Happy 2018. A happy 2018 to you and to all the listeners, and and thanks, Goat. I think uh, it's great to be back, and I think it was actually important for us to kind of get back together on this because uh, a little peek behind the curtain for everyone. I'd say you and I have had a contentious relationship lately, the last uh, <laughs> well, last be, few weeks of 2017. So it's to good be, to start the new year, maybe you know, putting it all behind us here. To be fair, I am trying to solve all the world's racial problems right now, <laughs> and that 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 can be a very you know heavy thing to take upon your shoulders but yeah we're starting fresh we said we said you know what if anything that was last year that was last year yeah that was a long time ago that was like 48 hours ago (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah if anything could bring us back together if anybody anything could you know reunite the world so to speak we're going to uh you know be doing that with the one the only you know david bowie we got to talk about him a lot of people may not know uh his birthday is coming up in a few days on january uh 8th 10th 10th or no you're right yeah sorry he died on the 10th yeah you know the reason i kind of stuttered there is i wanted to double check to make sure i didn't say the wrong thing because i didn't want to bring up the death day but yeah, yeah very very sad um he was born January eighth, nineteen forty-seven. Passed away January tenth, twenty sixteen. Mm-hmm. So at the age of sixty-nine, uh, obviously. So you know this would have been another milestone birthday for David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Or uh, yeah, he he would have been officially like well into the seventies. He would have been turning seventy-one, I guess. But uh, very sad that we lost him. But that hey, if anybody gave you enough material to really enjoy. Throughout their career, it's David Bowie. The man was a workhorse and then some. And, um, you know, as far as, like, what we do a little bit here on The Graveyard, as far as paying tribute to past films, this film we're talking about tonight, Labyrinth, um, you know, it became a cult film pretty quick. I would say within five to ten years it was catching on. But yeah, that, it was kind of surprising to read that it was a, a bomb because yeah. I, I think you and I would both agree it just seemed like such a consistent part of our childhood. Right. And, like, we'll get to it in a minute, but I always saw this as kind of, not a direct sequel, obviously, but almost like a follow-up to The Dark Crystal, which did very well a few years earlier for the Henson Company. And, yeah, it's just, it's just strange that this movie wouldn't do well. But anyway, we got a lot to talk about tonight. Uh, a lot of Labyrinth, a lot of uh, Henson Company uh, developments and news throughout the years, because I think they have a pretty interesting history into themselves but um obviously it's all about the man taking center stage and as much as the henson company is loved for their work i'd say this movie is really gaining that cult status or at least coming back in the last few years 
for, you know, the David Bowie performance. So we're happy to be watching Labyrinth tonight. We're yeah, and I'm happy you asked me to be on this one. I think it was only recently that you even found out how much David Bowie meant to me, too. I, was, I remember you yeah. kind of surprised. And... Yeah, it's kind of funny because I've been a Bowie fan. We'll get to it, I guess, in a second. I, I, want, I kind of want to break that down and see how long we both. But, yeah, we just kind of bumped into this, and then obviously we're both mourning the man, the loss of his talent, and, uh, you know, even two years on, it's, it's still a shocker to uh, people who are, you know, really serious fans or whatnot. Mm-hmm. but uh but yeah i just you know i saw his his birthday was coming up and i was just like we got to do something you know it's it's been two years uh since he's left us unfortunately but you know we haven't really done anything ever on this show you know and there's tons of stuff we could do to talk about david bowie so we might as well just kick it off here with labyrinth so we have our disc pause at the two second mark this was um Tristar movie, so you're getting ready to see the horse run and come jump out at you. So we have it literally at the one or two second mark here. It's just a blue sky screen, and the second a horse is going to come jumping out at us. So grab your DVD or Blu-ray remote. Get ready. I'm going to say one, two, three, go. And when I say go, hit play on your remote, guys, and we will start enjoying some Labyrinth right here on this January evening. All right, everybody. One, two, three, go. Here we go. I have to say, this was always a welcome sign in uh, the theater when I was a kid, this TriStar mm-hmm. logo, because it just seems so many, you know, now you look back, some of their movies quality-wise were hit and miss, but from a kid's perspective, they made a lot of great stuff in the 80s. Well, and then you have this, and you see Henson and Lucasfilm, and again, as a kid of the 80s, you're like, man, this I'm, I'm in for something special here. I mean, we probably won't spend too much time actually talking about it, but Henson, Lucasfilm, <laughs> two, two things that don't exactly quite exist in the, the you know, the, the past form, I guess you could say. Probably be yeah. But I have to say, you know, uh, upon uh, rewatching this, Trev, uh, like immediately jumped out to me was like wow eight nineteen eighty six film and we're getting some heavy dose of CGI right away aren't we Yeah, I mean not, not the most impressive CGI, but I bet it was probably somewhat mind blowing at the time. Now it looks like a like a bad screensaver for a laptop or <laughs> right. something. But it has a bit of an artistry to it. It's just really only that part where like it zoomed right in on the face. It got really fakey when it was like mm-hmm. going fast to and fro the camera. It, it, you know, I, I kind of enjoyed it for what it was but um yeah mm-hmm. and it, you know, it's kind of funny too because another thing that kind of hit me trev and maybe you'll disagree with this maybe not but like i don't think you can do a kid's movie nowadays with credits over black what do you think because i i feel like just that's that's a tradition that uh, attention spans. i don't think you can do hardly any movie like that i mean like, whenever i see a new woody allen movie it's always like you're kind of taken aback at the beginning when it's just right. the traditional like white over black credits for a while, for a few minutes you know and you're like oh yeah uh yeah i don't think like anybody wants to really try that anymore mm-hmm. but i mean to be fair this for like you know they have this owl flying around so i mean they're trying to give you a little something more visual and keep right. the kids attention but and I, felt like, I, I got a quick question here. I just noticed yeah. that the editor's name was John Grover, and I'm assuming these are people who work with Henson a lot Go and, ahead. you know, are part of his team. Do you think Grover from Sesame Street came from that individual? I mean, it's actually very possible, believe it or not. Let me check out some Grover credits in a second. But, um, but yeah, like one thing that I kind of thought when I first saw this CGI thing flying around was this kind of reminded me, and I don't know if it was exactly – 
when George Lucas, here we go, executive producer George Lucas, I don't know when he owned them, the time frames exactly, yeah. but there was a time when he owned both Pixar and Industrial Light and Magic, and I was kind of curious who did that CGI owl, if it was Pixar or ILM, but, mm-hmm. and I have to say, I, I really like how it transitions into the life, you know, the real life owl there. Yeah. You know? And what do you think about this fake out ending, Trev? Like it starts out with Jennifer Connelly running with some medieval garb. She's in a park, which literally, it, it could be medieval times. Like you don't know for sure. Yeah, no, I think it's a, I think it's a clever opener uh, that because like I, you know, I so I just revisited this last week and I hadn't watched it in years. Um, and even for a moment, I was like, kind of like, I forgot that this was like a joke, you know, right. that I was like, oh, is this like a, an alternate reality? Are we seeing a dream? And I forgot that it's just her rehearsing for a play, but. I think it's a nice fake out opener yeah i think you know like i've really appreciated it just because i mean and I've, I've watched this movie within the last year but when i rewatched it last night it kind of got me yet again it's just something that it's easy to forget but it's always mm-hmm. kind of you know startling a little bit i also just think you're like well, i mean i'm sure we'll talk a lot about this as we watch it but um the fact that she's like rehearsing for this play called the labyrinth and then you see this dog that will later be a character inside the world and and this owl obviously will find out has something different, but I mean, I, I, you know, I feel like if this, this movie was made today, the whole like labyrinth element would later be that she fell and hit her head and was just having a dream or something, you know, right. like this is a kind of like fantastical idea that you just don't get as much anymore today, which is too bad. And um, where do you what do you think about that? Do you think that was that these characters are more a um, real life cipher? for what's going on in the goblin world or do you think that she actually like through her will made all this stuff come true i mean i kind of like you know that's like a a, certainly a reading i'm sure is out there but i don't know i feel like the film doesn't do much to insinuate other anything other than this is actually another world that exists that somehow gets called into you know this world through her so because i noticed like it'll be coming up here in a second but there's like the one little um i don't know really what you call them like this ain't like lord of rings where people have like an orc or an elf or whatever like mm-hmm. the one character is actually seen as an action figure in the room here in a second yeah. Yeah. and it's and it's very kind of like as the credits play or just like the camera sweeps by unfortunately i gotta knock your uh, your uh theory into the uh the uh, ground with Grover. I mean, unless it was really some super early. No, that's all right. Stuff that's that just we didn't curious. know about. He is more known for being a James Bond editor. Oh. Yeah, for your eyes only, the living daylights, license to kill, and he also around the labyrinth time he also did Life Force. Toby oh wow, nice. Yeah. Now, don't you think if this if a labyrinth was remade today, though, that certainly like the the take on it would be like, well, now it's going to be this thing about like mental, you know, like oh, yeah. it's all in her head, and you know, she's creating this false reality. And see, there's like one character that looks like the one crazy yeah, the guy ones to that... take their heads off. And yeah. Then there's a, kind of like the fairy, and then we go there. I'm sure that stuffed animal is supposed to be somebody, but here you 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 see like the labyrinth little game. But then right past these uh, books, I'm pretty sure is the one character. Yeah, there he is. See him as the kind of the book in action character. Action yeah, Hoggle. Hoggle, yeah, that's his name. But yeah, yeah. I was going to say, sadly, uh, one of John Grover's uh, last uh, credits uh, in terms of uh, Ezra was um, TV series called Fat Friends. 
an independent feature called Funky Monkey. Nice. Yeah. You also see Gareth, uh, the Goblin King, there as a statue on her dresser. Do you notice that? That's right. I knew he was in or there Jared. somewhere. I, I couldn't. Jareth. Yeah. Um, so, I, well, let's talk about it now before we really get going on this. Oh, she's got a Judge Dredd book in her room. Did you notice that? That was really weird. I didn't notice that. I just, this doesn't seem like a character that would read Judge Dredd. Um, would, now, I don't know if I felt this when I was a kid, because as a kid, I think I just always had a crush on Jennifer Connelly, and that's all you really right. cared about. But as you get older and keep revisiting this film, is this safe to say that Sarah might be one of the most unlikable film protagonists of all time? You know, I was thinking about this, and I mean, I'm assuming, you know, we'll try to explain a little bit, because there is always wacky shit going on screen here, but I'm assuming a lot of these listeners like you know are very familiar with this film and uh you know that's one thing i appreciated about how unlikable she was because i think you're right like i don't think you could do this character today like no studio with green light they'd be like well she's not likable enough but a situation where you know i'm not sure exactly how old she's supposed to be probably close 14 or something in this movie Mm -hmm. her character age um i think that's a very common thing about people who get remarried because she's living with her dad and her stepmom and then they have a new baby i think that's a very common like real life thing and i think that's just kind of like how more i don't know realistic or edgy the 80s was was like i appreciate the honesty like i it didn't really grate on my nerves in a bad way mm-hmm. i just found that being more realistic of like what would happen and obviously she she does a 180 immediately and she doesn't really mean to like hate you know because basically she sends the kid to like another world, you know, it gets kidnapped by goblins, but it's basically because she wished for it, but she immediately mm-hmm. takes it back. But I think you're right in like a lot of ways with, you know, how kind of like she's definitely got the teenage mood swings going on. Yeah. And I think what I've noticed is like it's not like the film really it's not to the very end that you feel like she really wants to save like toby it's more that she's like oh crap i made a mistake and i have to fix it or else i'll be in trouble you know through a lot of the film but she goes through some pretty great because i think if she really hated him there's no way she would brave the labyrinth something interesting because we'll get to bowie in a moment but i I feel like Connolly's obviously worth talking about too and that um big time you know, like I said, as a kid, I think all of us around our age had a crush on her. And uh, it's interesting because you go back and you look at a film like this. And then I was I just rewatched Phenomena recently. And there's just something about her where it's interesting. Like, it's like filmmakers knew what she was going to be uh, and were willing to put up with her not having a lot of skill for a while. I don't mean that. I mean, I don't mean to be too much of a jerk, but she's not like that great in this or Phenomena. She has like no. really bad line readings, but the, she, there's just something about her. She has this like kind of intriguing screen presence that oh I you know agree. over that over like allows you to overlook some of the like lesser acting yeah like i don't um i mean I, like i definitely remember seeing seeing labyrinth when it came out i was about nine years old i definitely didn't see phenomena you know during its original i, mm-hmm. I didn't see phenomena until it hit anchor bay dvd so i was like in my teens see i feel like i saw creepers like in the 80s but yeah I, for some reason i never saw that once so, like i really only knew her from this movie but i kind of forgot about her and the movie, which I'm a big fan of just as a movie, but the movie where I was like, you know, you know, I noticed Jennifer Connelly as a woman was Career Opportunities. Was, oh, she, of she, course. Yeah, she was full grown by that time and, you know, everything like that. So you, and, That's and plus, in particular the scene on the horse, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, the movie just plays on it as a theme. You can't help right. but notice. But yeah, to me, she was, um, at the time, she was just, you know, a girl in a movie. Um, 
But yeah, like, I think really, even though it's not like, I know what you're saying, like, she's not the worst child actor, she's not the best, but Mm -hmm. there's something about her presence, and I don't know if it's just like a classic look, but I found it more in her eyes uh, photographed really well. Um, yeah they, they they really stand out in a lot of scenes where there's good lighting and uh even though she didn't have like maybe in the moment the best um i don't know a- acting uh awareness or whatever i don't know what you call it, presence in terms of like with the character she just had some like she felt like even in this movie i guess because you know whatever her age was i'm not exactly sure it's probably 14 15 16 around when she filmed this like she had like that like she's still a kid, but she's she's got like adult qualities, if you know what mm-hmm. I mean. Well, there's no way to say this without sounding like a pervert. So whatever, I'll just go for it. Because hey, right. give us give us a break. We were little kids when this first came out, so oh, we're yeah. going back to those memories. But uh, she's got that like Brooke Shields quality, right? Exactly. That even as like a like she just like even as a young person, she films really well and looks really beautiful right. on screen. And and like you said, it seems like there's something uh, older than her years. And and she obviously, you know, don't think I'm knocking on her talent because she definitely grew into her acting ability oh, yeah. um, more so than Brooke Shields did, actually. So Yeah, I mean, yeah, big time, you know. And, 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 you know, that's the way you want it to be. You want your first five, six, whatever movies to not be your best. You, know? <laughs> you want to get better as you go on. And obviously she's, you know, been nominated for awards and whatnot as an adult. Now here we have the first entrance of Bowie as a Goblin King. Sheriff. Yeah, yeah and I feel like... Even though this this costume that he has on is, is very fitting with the 80s, he almost looks like he could be a keyboard player for Duran Duran or something. <laughs> it uh, looks like he would be in, like, a Japanese metal band now. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, as much as, like, this look was very, for this character, was very much in the 80s, I actually think maybe fans are more attracted to it now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think that's why you, he's such a, a popular cosplay uh, type character. Mm-hmm. Now, now, I don't know about you, but a lot of these little effects of like stuff morphing into their hands and stuff, I was pretty blown away by how quality these effects were for this time period. Yeah, no, it's good. And then I'm always watching this and thinking, like, is somebody actually doing that? With, I mean, yeah. obviously someone is with the ball, like, right? That's pretty yeah, it's impressive. it's going hand-to-hand. It's so, like, honestly, there's some kind of, you know, the way you do it with your hand, there's some kind of illusion going on. But, it, yeah, I mean, it, it looks like it's real. But this is like this is you know when you and I talk about '80s movies and what we like about them, we're only 13 minutes into this movie and we've already got, you know, just Jareth the Goblin King appearing in this girl's right. house to kidnap her baby brother. Um, I mean, this movie don't kid around. This you know don't play around getting to the point and doesn't offer like a lot of um, you know explanation for anything or whatever. It just kind of jumps right in and again, a modern version of this. I'm sure we wouldn't get to this until about 25 minutes in. We'd have to have a lot of build up. And well, you know, I, I think too. I think we're just living in a different time where everybody's obsessed about spoilers. This and uh, and like I get it because for a long time Hollywood burned our asses with trailers that just told you everything about the movie. But I feel like back then it's just like they knew the trailer was going to give it away like the fantasy element so to speak so it's like might as well cut to the chase whereas i feel like audiences now like they have to have their suspension of disbelief built up to a much higher level mm-hmm. but yeah and i think it's better than like the non-cgi way the way they cut from the house interior to cut you know single shot cut to her with a new background then single shot cut to him in a new background so now they're in a completely different place 
I think that kind of that's what we're missing is we're trying to like wow the people so much with the special effects now that mm-hmm. we're like doing all these CGI backdrops and all these like effects when like literally sometimes a hard cut to like you know if it's a fantasy movie anything can happen all bets are off and I kind of appreciated this movie being more of a you know old school obviously a uh, handcrafted film that they had to rely on those techniques and it's just like it helps get to the chase quicker i think look how quickly she just accepted what's happening yeah, too. she's like, like well come on feet we gotta go into the lab <laughs> yeah because i mean what else were you gonna do just stand on the hill all day like you mm-hmm. know and this I'm, outfit that's an 80s outfit man oh. <laughs> oh, oh yeah okay first of all this scene has major heat with me i love this movie but like i don't like shit like this in movies let alone kids movies the Hoggle guy, he's just pissing into a pond, like literally. Like you see the piss stream. I mean, you see him from the backside, but he's the piss streams coming out. I was like, we did not need that, you know. Now, obviously, he would be like farting or something. But mm-hmm. this really is a pretty excited. great introduction to him, though. I do love the uh, just spraying the little like yeah. Uh, fairies. Yeah, and I love the fairies that you get a combination of puppets on strings with close-ups of little kids and fairy cops. I mean, I just miss that old school technique just because it, it just works better for me it draws me mm-hmm. into the world better now you know i just did this earlier with grover and was proven wrong but uh so hoggle throughout the film multiple characters will keep getting his name wrong yeah. and she keeps calling him hogwart and i was yeah. like hmm, i wonder if rowling uh you know was a fan of this film and that's where hogwarts came from be. has to be i mean how how would it because this is a very british movie and, and um you know obviously bowie but you know, like a lot of fantasy films at the time, a lot of it was shot at L Street Studios. Yeah. And it, well, I think uh, one of the things about Labyrinth that doesn't get talked about enough um, is, so you know, people talk about Connolly and Bowie and Henson. But nobody really talks about the fact that Terry Jones was the primary listed writer. Uh, right. Terry Jones, one of the Monty Python members. Yeah. And, and if, now, you, if you check out the IMDb or the Wikipedia page, like they talk about all these different story directions, mm-hmm. the, the story went on. So I think there's multiple writers, but yeah, Terry Jones is, he has the official screenplay credit. Mm-hmm. And it has like a, not like Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam are two different people, obviously, but it has that feel of like a Terry Gilliam kind of world too. And Oh, I agree with that. Like you, you know, and well, first of all, we haven't even talked about that. This movie was actually directly, you know, directed by Jim Henson. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of that had to do with just the fact that, you know, they probably needed somebody from the Henson company to really do it. Just so somebody would understand exactly how all the gags work and best to film them, best ways to film and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'd say for like what it is, it's it's well directed. Like he definitely did a, a really good job with it. It is. It's very you know we talked about you know really cut to the chase. It's very economical, mm-hmm. but it still has a style. And I have to say, um, you know they they for I mean this movie is you know once the open you know besides the opening scene or whatnot and then the closing scene. This this film is what ninety five percent shot on studios with constructed sets and whatnot and just I don't know like it's very hard sometimes to make these small sets and these small quarters appear interesting and also you have to kind of film them in a way that kind of sells them as real locations which is usually very hard for directors to do and I and like I felt like Henson did did do a good job of this because it's like you know I was sitting here marveling uh, last night at like all the stuff that they physically had you know like everybody jerks off now about you know one or two creatures being physical whatever effects and movies 
But like, I mean, just the the whole environment had to be it was a physical effect, you know, when they made this, mm-hmm. or practical effect, I should say. But yeah, like Jennifer Connelly, I don't know. Like, I'm kind of surprised that. Um, well, maybe she had to, like whatever, but I'm surprised like she did as much nudity as she did in like movies not in this movie to be to be no yeah she very well well, that's what that's kind of what i'm getting at is like she had a very clean start to her career so i'm surprised she even you know she wasn't a star by no means after like creepers and labyrinth and whatnot but she definitely was working a lot for a young person i was really surprised you know maybe she's just like is in a method acting and stuff i mean i know she is now but at the time i was surprised she kind of did things in movies like uh uh, the hot spot and Mulholland Falls and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it is weird to, you know, because I've seen her play a lot of gritty roles in recent years too, and it, it's just it's weird to see her as a kid again, you know. Do you have that weird thing you'll do? Like uh, this is getting into tricky territory now, but why not? Who cares? Uh, <laughs> do you have that weird it, thing? It, where is, it a, is the theme of Hollywood right now. So yeah. Um, so well, as a grown man, when you watch this now, do, like, do you flash back to like when you were a kid and like you thought she was really cute back then? You know, like do you still see her that way, or can you only see her as a kid now? As a you you know, it's weird. It's a it, it's like you know how like. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example of this, but like, you know how like Eddie Murphy does a fat suit movie mm-hmm. and like, you know, like, like you look at it and it's a fat suit, but you can still see like Eddie Murphy in there. That's yeah. how I feel. It's like, I see this little kid, but I see Jennifer Connelly in there. It's weird. You know what I mean? Well, no, I, I, I do. Cause it's like, I said, like if you show me some new, like 14, 15 year old actress, like it's like, okay, that's just a 14 year old. Right. But then here it's like, Oh, but that's a 14-year-old that I had the hots for when I was, like, seven. You know, it's, like... And it's, like, also, too, like I said, like, like for me, when I really noticed uh, Jennifer Connelly, like, as a, like, as a, like, a legit actor, like, oh, I know who this person... Like, I, you know, when I know knew her name, basically, it was career opportunity, so it's, like... Like, when I watch this, it's, it's, like, everything to me with Jennifer Connelly is, like, that came before is, like, oh, this is pre-career opportunity. Like, it's, like, <laughs> it's weird. Like, it's even harder for me to adjust to seeing her now because she's gone to, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, like, um, just, a, just a much, um, uh, just lighter weight. She's very skinny now. Mm-hmm. And so now it's, like, hard for, and it's, it's not even that she looks older. She She's aged very, very well. But just, just seeing her so skinny is weird to me, too. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's it's like young Jennifer Connelly isn't the real Jennifer Connelly to me, and skinny Jennifer Connelly isn't the real Jennifer Connelly. But I mean, like like no kidding, she's she's got to be in my top five favorite actresses just because she's been in so many movies that I love. Also, I'm a big fan of uh, Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, The Rocketeer as well. The Rocketeer is awesome. Yeah, which that's another one I need to rewatch soon. I've had the blue for a little bit and haven't got a chance to watch it yet. Now, like, what did you think of that little caterpillar guy? I liked it. I, there's a lot of, like, so there's a lot of characters in this that, I mean, the movie keeps giving you every, you know, four minutes or so a, a brand new character to kind of digest and look at. And uh, some of them are, like, um, you know, intentionally ugly and kind of hard to look at. And some of them are just, like, cute and fun. And I, I really like the worm. I just think, like, he looks, uh, he doesn't feel like he fits into the movie. He has, like, a different yeah. kind of look. 
but uh, I, there's something really fun about him. Yeah, I, I this, really, this scene we gotta talk about this scene. Yeah, this, this, this kid, man. What I want to know about this kid now, like, is he, how much mental trauma does he have? I know. Or maybe there is multiple of them. Like sometimes they do that. Too. But I mean, what that one right there was just standing there, like crying, like screaming, all these like crazy creatures around him. Yeah, like there's. Why weird... did nobody complain about this? And, and, and by the way, like I, I got to point this out. I know he was just a producer; he didn't direct. But to me, this is the most George Lucas scene of the movie, because like people will uh, criticize George Lucas for going back on old films and putting CGI to have more characters in the foreground, in the background. This was the most busy. Like this had to be a world record for puppets being puppeteered in a movie scene, because I mean, it's it like it's like literally David Bowie's practically stepping on <laughs> to, to just move around this room, you know. And like for people who like you know are following along with the disc or aren't that familiar, this is the scene. Where literally a baby is in a like a small pit, like a two foot pit, surrounded by goblins all grabbing at him and pinching at him and screaming at him, and that 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 image is actually originally what made them uh, was like the very first thing they came up with that inspired the whole movie, the whole storyline and whatnot. And originally the Goblin King like was going to be a woman. It was just there's so many different varieties. And I gotta, you know, wonder like eventually this version, this iconic version that we came off, came up with with uh, David Bowie. Uh, I just wonder how much of it was really just Bowie being Bowie. But we got to talk about um, this is one of the more famous songs. Bowie did five songs. I'd say for this, this is the most famous one. Yeah, the most famous. And uh, I have to say, like when I when I like watch this, like even though like I literally I've had the soundtrack for years. I bought the CD maybe four or five years ago. But still, when he breaks in the song, like, there's nothing leading up into that moment to really, you know, this isn't like a rock opera or anything, but there's nothing to really prepare you for the fact that he's just going to break into a song there. Like, Well, I actually wanted, I wanted to talk about that for sure, because that's what I was thinking about watching it, too, is, um, so it's a very, obviously, it's a, it's a very interesting film in a lot of ways, but, you know, you cast David Bowie in this part, and at, at this point, Bowie had made some other films as well, and, you right. know, was certainly an actor as well, not just a, a rock star, but then they wanted to capitalize on that element of him as well, and I was just thinking, like, that's something that you wouldn't see today either, like, this idea of casting some rock star and just letting them be a rock star in the film, whether the narrative needs it or not. Right. It's just, it's just an odd decision, because he could have just been the Goblin King. He didn't need yeah. to make this a musical as well, especially since... There's not that many musical numbers. It's just kind of something that pops up from time to time. It comes and goes, and if he didn't have the musical numbers to do, he would literally be on screen about five minutes out of this movie. Like, yeah, like it takes, especially in the early goings, you know. But I kind of like it though, because like, you know, it, the formula wasn't so apparent then in children's entertainment. But if you look at things that would come later, like Barney and the Wiggles or whatever they were, like, like kids just singing and dancing and creatures jumping around like i almost feel like this is this pioneered some of that you know what i mean like it's just entertainment kind of filler for you know to keep an audience of kids uh you know occupied you know well i wonder like you you read a little bit more than i did i think about the making of this but was that an element of them like to convince david Bowie to do this film to say like well you're not just gonna act but you'll also get to write songs and you'll get an album out of this and you know, maybe I just didn't read the right stuff, but like the stuff that I read was just kind of like, it just it just kind of says that you know he recorded the songs for the film, but it doesn't really you know say like why or who came up with it. Like one mm -hmm. thing I do know is that 
I don't know like why it didn't give a reason why, but um, he really didn't promote the film at all. Uh, I don't know if that was a time constraint or what, but what he did do was he made a music video for one of the songs, and they said, um, I believe it was Jim Henson, if not, it was somebody else associated with the film, but um, they said they were fine with that because that was the at that time that was the best use of promotion. Like he could have done was make a music video to help mm-hmm. promote the movie. You know what I mean? Not that it ultimately helped that much, but yeah. But I gotta think that the whole musical element had to be very Bowie specific because it's not like anybody else sings a song in this entire movie. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But this was an interesting time in David Bowie's career as well because, um, you know, this was you know, so Let's Dance is one of his biggest you know mainstream hits. That was '83. Right. Then he followed that with Tonight in '84, which you know did pretty pretty well i think but wasn't quite as i'm not sure it was uh as big as let's dance but this is like uh so this movie didn't do very well labyrinth right and then the next year he releases the album never let me down which he considers you know his worst worst album so it's like he was really going through some some, a a, a rough a rough spell here for a bit yeah 87 was his i was going to ask you about that trev 87 is like you know obviously they filmed this movie in 85 uh, by the way, Connolly isn't you know, encountering even more creatures here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they filmed this in '85. It came out in '86, so the soundtrack came out in '86 and whatnot. And then yeah, Never Let Me Down came out in '87, which I am actually a fan of. That I don't even know why, honestly. Just I just like it. Um, but uh, kind of his low point that he talked about was when he did the tour for Never Let Me Down, which was called the Glass Spider Tour. Which um, is there's a song on on that album called Glass Spider, but uh, I watched um, like on YouTube, I like a while ago. I tried to watch a full length concert from the Glass Spider tour, and it literally starts out with like 20 minutes of like just random beats and hip hop dancers on the stage. Like you think you're watching like a Broadway stage play, which is like you know that's very cool that he put on that type of production, but it takes so long in the concert just to get Bowie out on stage. And I was just curious, were you familiar with that whole glass spider thing? I only knew about it in terms of him being unhappy with it. Yeah. Um, I never but never bothered to watch a lot of it. I because I actually don't like that album. I kind of agree with him that it's yeah. like a it's pretty weak. I it's mean, actually my, the only Bowie album standards. I don't have on my iPod. But really yeah. Yeah, I had it on I had it on my phone through my Spotify account and all of a sudden they just oh, like a month ago they disabled like 90% of the tracks on it so I can't even listen to it anymore for some reason. But But yeah, I think this is like almost one of the most nightmarish uh Yeah, this is I mean, this is awesome, but also terrifying. But I do love yeah. the hands, like, creating the faces. And Yeah, Jennifer Connelly basically falls down a tunnel that's, just, like, all, like, basically kind of look like zombie hands, and they eventually catch her. But then also, while the hands are catching her, other hands are, are talking to her, and, and, like, they're, like, they're basically doing shadow puppet-type techniques to make the, mm-hmm. the um, you know, with the hand, different sets of hands to make a face and a mouth. And it's really cool. It's, like... For, like, literally, like, what was that, Tread? Like, maybe 20 seconds of screen time? Like, that literally, I couldn't imagine the amount of work that went into that to construct that thing, you know? Mm-hmm. But again, it's just, it's just another, like, you know, it's easy to kind of write this off and say, oh, this movie's about dancing Muppets and David Bowie and drag or whatever. But, like, every five minutes in this movie, I don't care who you are, there's going to be something when you watch it that's going to basically 
like surprise you with how creative it is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Can we just talk about Jareth as a character for a moment? Yeah, let's um, really get into it because it's we're talking about <laughs> Bowie and the Goblin King, but we really it's it's hard to you know for someone because I'm sure there's probably going to be some people who listen to this show who really aren't familiar with this movie and it's it's I don't know it's pretty it's pretty insane character. Yeah, I mean, what is Jareth's ultimate plan or like motivation? Because okay, so. They need her to say she wants the Goblin King to come take the baby away. We see them waiting for her to say that. Right. So it's not like it's something they're like actively planning for. Just something it's, they're just hoping it happens. And then he wants to take Toby, her her baby brother, and turn him into uh, a goblin. Right? I mean, it right. says like yeah. if you don't get him, you know, by thirteen hours or whatever, he'll become one of us forever. And then later in the film, when I guess when he ends up being somewhat impressed with her that she's made it as far as she has in the labyrinth. He just kind of changes to wanting her to become his queen um, and kind of like starting to hit on her. I don't know. It's just what an odd character, right? That he wants to take this little baby boy and keep him, but then he's willing to give her a chance to win him back, but not really because he doesn't play by any kind of rules. And then later he's just like, well, actually now my ultimate thing is I'm going to try and hook up with this 14 year old girl. <laughs> just uh, again, pretty strange when you really start to break it down. It is, and you know that whole thing with the motivation and whatnot. Um, that's kind of like why I started leaning towards my most recent rewatch of this last night. That maybe this was all like, like I definitely didn't think she hit a she hit her head and then dreamed it all up. But that just almost made me think that, you know, she, because, you know, we see these elements, you know, the, the characters pretty much in her room. That's what made me think it you know, she basically, not hallucinated, but like she willed this whole world into existence. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I do have the answer to the earlier question. Yeah, this was um, pretty much uh, David Bowie made Henson want to like make use of his musical talent. So they changed the script a lot because originally it was really all about just the labyrinth, getting through the labyrinth. And Henson wanted to add the songs and, J- and Terry Jones disagreed, but eventually kind of gave in and rewrote a version of the script to allow for the songs and whatnot. But then as more time went, we like went on, went on. Um, Laura Phillips and even George Lucas kind of did another redraft. So. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that kind of, you know, what do you think? Let's talk a little bit about George Lucas here as Hoggle, uh, you know, leads her through another part of Lamarth. What do you think about George Lucas? If this would have went over and if Willow would have went over a little bit bigger, do you think George Lucas might Because, like, I feel like he had the, like, the, the fantasy magical realm bug a little bit at this time of projects he was involved with. You know what I mean? Like... Mm-hmm. Do you think George Lucas might have not have like become just the Star Wars guy? <laughs> well, I wonder is that I was wondering if that's what you were building to. Like, do you think? I mean, I don't know. It's an interesting question. Like, if Labyrinth and Willow had been gigantic hits, and he'd actually create this kind of new empire, yeah. uh, no pun intended. But is there a world then there where he doesn't bother to even go back and do the prequels, or did he like I, did he feel like he had to because the other things weren't working? I think if either Labyrinth or Willow were to become, you know, I don't know if you would have turned them into a trilogy or whatnot, but um, if they would have gone to at least the the point of being sequelized, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I I think we probably would not have got the prequels. 
We gotta talk about this optical illusion. It's great. There's like a little character you see in the shadow, like a little bent over beggar character. And then Bowie like kind of stands up and the, the whole, like what you're seeing, the, the form and what you thought was the head and whatnot was just kind of like a hat and some other things. Like that kind of blew me away when I was watching this last night. Yeah. So are we going to, because there's a lot of people that talk about this. And I was just about, I, let me guess what you're about to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I was also, just thinking, yeah, like, well, with, with the uh, the you know, the obviously, like you said, like the, yeah, we're pretty far in, and we have not talked about the bulge yet. Yeah, uh, the cod piece, because you know, a lot of people yeah. say it's really not appropriate for um, you know this movie where this grown man, this you know, forty year old man, is after this fourteen year old girl and whatnot so hard. But I was just thinking. You know, cause, cause, and and I've never thought about this in this movie before or whatnot, but I I've been hearing that a lot lately. You know about how ridiculous it was, but to me it just looks like um like a normal like athletic thing or like whatever that form the cup thing that like uh, Shakespearean actors when they wear tights put in. What do you think? Well, it's funny because I don't think I thought anything of it as a kid. You know, it's no. not like um. You know, I wasn't like, oh, my God, look at that bulge the entire time I watched the film. It's well, more it, like it, when it became like a meme later, right. it was, you know, it got kind of funny. But, yeah, it doesn't really – I don't know. It seems like it fits like the costume design. Right. And, and it's a very much like a Batman-esque cod piece. It is it is a legit cod piece underneath some tights. It's not, it doesn't look like some guy's, you know, uh, whatever sticking through his pants, you know. I thought this, but was also kind of, like Bowie is just a, like someone who you know, even in a children's film, why is like Bowie not going to exude sexuality? You right, know, that's right. David Bowie. It always has been. And you know, like like not that he was laying it on super thick, it, but real quick, this this kind of spinning thing of like it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of Hellraiser too a little bit, in all honesty. But um, this machine, this giant drill that Bowie conjured by throwing a glass sphere down the down the hallway and then all of a sudden this big kind of tank thing with these drill things are coming after him but honestly i'm like one thing i think is kind of you know bowie obviously known for his gender bending ways and i like when it goes by it's just like some yeah. horse like <laughs> pedaling it you know it's not this big mechanical machine like you think but i you know it's kind of funny because like i find his take on kind of how he you know, kind of walks around and kind of like said like how he exudes exude sexuality in this film. I kind of I find it interesting because, and maybe you'll disagree with this, Trev, but like for Bowie for being somebody who his whole career, I mean, even through Ziggy Stardust, I mean, to me Ziggy Stardust never looked like a man or a woman. It was like you know that that uh, ambiguity was always there about the gender and sexuality and whatnot. For as much as he's like pretty much like in drag in this thing with like like a wig and then like literally eyeshadow and all this kind of stuff. I felt like he still had a pretty, as a character had a pretty masculine presence. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, uh, yeah, I know. I know. I know you mean yeah. like more so than some of his like normal, like some of the traditional Bowie characters. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I just found that kind of interesting. And, uh, cause I, I, I think the, uh, you know, like, like I think for with a lot of actors, if you gotten that type of get up that he's wearing, and like looking at, you know, it would always be the tendency to play it more like a snake and more, you know, kind of um, ambiguous towards like, you know, not just the sexuality but like the gender as well. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I'm really curious. I have this person in my mind, and there's a reason why. I, I like obviously 
I would think this person, but I got to ask you, Trev, because I mean, it would be the unthinkable, but if they were to remake this movie and there is some like sequel or spinoff development, but they're mm-hmm. not remaking it. There will be no new Goblin King. I want to get that out there. But, but if they did have to remake and recast the Goblin King, who do you think would stand a strong chance of uh, being the new Goblin King? Okay, I thought about this too, and in my mind, there's only one right answer, and that's what you just said. But I wonder if we have the same one. Um, yeah. The the only person I can really picture pulling it off is you and McGregor. Really? Yeah. I thought they were going to try to be this the switchy trickaroo because they've kind of done this in other things, but I was thinking Tilda Swinton actually. Oh, I can see that. I mean, I can see them trying it, but I, yeah. I feel like you and McGregor would like. Well, it's because it's like a lot of people have talked about Ewan McGregor as potentially playing Bowie in like a biopic too, right. you know. Um, which, but yeah, he, I think, which he kind of came close. <laughs> yeah, uh. you know, you know, playing Iggy Pop in a fake. <laughs> well, he played a fake Iggy Pop in a fake David Bowie biopic. <laughs> yeah, so. but no, I think I could definitely just see him like as as Jareth. Um, I think that would be amazing, actually, and I'm kind of surprised that that Ewan McGregor hasn't been cast in more roles like that. Mm-hmm. Now here we have yeah, and actually like uh, sorry, just really quickly, uh, is that like confirmed that that sequel is not going to have the Goblin King in it? Is that, that's yeah, what I, um, I want to say because I was actually reading up on this. There was a lot of like you know, is it a reboot? Is it a blah blah blah? But um, but yeah, according to I believe Lisa Henson's word, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's not a reboot. It's not a sequel. It's not a, well, it's, it, it's not a direct sequel, and there will be no new Goblin King. And they were actually very sensitive towards the fact that um, this project was, um, you know, came about because of cult status of the film. They weren't trying to throw something together just because of the, the death of mm-hmm. David Bowie. They had it in the planning stages before he passed. So, But here we have another character, and I kind of like this character. It's an old man, but he has like a, like a turkey or a vulture growing out of his head. <laughs> Now, on an annoying scale, how how much does Hoggle annoy you throughout this movie? It kind of varies throughout the film. I think there's something fun about his, like, constantly changing. Like, you never know if he's, like, really helping her or right. not. I actually do kind of like that. Um, I feel like Lucas uh, would pull that out. Like, th- he pulls that off better here than with uh, Ray, Winston's, Ray Winstone's character in Indiana Jones 4, that's for sure. Uh <laughs> This is like the early version of that, right? Yeah, it kind of is. I never thought of it that way. <laughs> but there's like moments where I kind of find Hoggle entertaining, and there's other moments where I find him just be kind of a, an annoyance. And I do. It's weird when I there's a certain point where the film starts seeming to insinuate. I know he just wants like a friend, but there is a weird thing where it seems like he kind of wants Jennifer Connelly to like love him. Yeah, and I kind of get skeeved out by that a little that. bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, my only real annoyance with him, I like the character. I Like, I think it's actually a good character in terms of the physical presence. Like, obviously, it's a, a small person playing him, and I think they did it to much better effect than they did in the Garbage Pail Kids movie. But, um, but I just, like, this point right here, right here is where it annoyed me, because I hate how he's constantly running off and coming back mm-hmm. and running off. Cause like, like I, I liked his, like, you know, his, his whatever loyalty switch and stuff. But um, but yeah, I, I just wish he was consistently in it more. But obviously, like again, like I don't think anybody, no studio would green like this now with all these. Like, what what are we in the film? We are forty two minutes in, and we're gonna meet another major character yet again. Mm-hmm. 
And this is what would you say? Maybe maybe you didn't think this, but as soon as I saw this character, did you think this was? Um, because there are other Henson characters similar to this character, but didn't you immediately kind of think of Chewbacca when you saw this character? Oh yeah, this is definitely like Labyrinth Chewbacca for sure. Yeah. yeah. Kind of big, dumb, furry guy, although he has horns, and Chewbacca doesn't have horns. But I really like these little goblin guys, and like um, I think kind of that's what CGI is robbing us of now, is uh, little people not getting these roles the way they used to. Because I just, I don't know, like the physical performances in these costumes I find so much more lifelike than what you would get out of a digital creation nowadays. I just love the detail too of their spears, like having these like kind of like naked mole rats on the end that actually that bite, bite people. people as they yeah stick you with them. And also too, this character, um, I heard well, I didn't hear. I, I read a lot of um, critics' observation. Like I don't want to call it criticism necessarily, but just critic observation is they felt like this film was very heavily inspired by Maurice Syndex, where the wild things are. Yeah, well, we see that book in her bedroom already. Right, which, you know, like that, you know, and this is kind of, I have to say, because what about you, Trev? Where are you at on the Spike Jones film adaptation of Where the Wild Things Are? Oh, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I don't know if it just, because that was like a really important book to me when I was younger. I don't know if it was just like they waited too long to make it, but like, I didn't hate the movie, but, but it didn't really turn out to like really be kind of what i wanted like our well, it's a it's an interesting film right because it's not it's not made for little kids who like the book right it's made for adults who like the book as a kid right. you know that's really like i think that's a big distinction that you have to kind of understand going in um it's definitely a movie about getting older and looking back on stuff and i think in a weird way this film labyrinth especially with this character here like, I feel like this is more what I wanted out of where the wild things are. We should put out this character's name is Ludo. Yeah. I kept wanting to call him something else for some reason, but yeah. And I mean, you said, like, well, so we're 44 minutes in, 45 minutes in, we get introduced, introduced to him, and we still have one more member of, like, the main group yeah. to be introduced to later. So. Yeah, this, this is very much, even though they don't play it like this, like, you, you finally realize, you know, by the conclusion of the film, this is really a we're getting the team together type movie, <laughs> you know, cause, cause I guess technically there's thousands of people who not, maybe not necessarily lost, but at least living in the labyrinth, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Now I was just, I was looking up uh, Jareth's information on Wikipedia and apparently the novelization of this movie gives a lot more backstory to him that kind of ties into your reading of the film a little bit more. Um, because it says that in the novelization, Jareth has a human alter ego named, uh, well, let's see, in Jareth Quinn. No, in the novelization labyrinth, Jeremy, who resembles Jareth, is an actor with whom Sarah's biological mother, an actress, had run off years earlier wow. after they had started a show together. Jeremy is also the man who gave Sarah her music box. And in the movie, uh, the same song, and the movie plays as the world falls down. The same song that Jareth uses to show his affection for Sarah while within his labyrinth. So it's kind of like if she is just creating this on her head, she's picturing the Goblin King as the man who like ran off with her mom and left her with the stepmom. Yeah, like I think they, de- I think it's ambiguous because they definitely had so many different versions. Because like you said, that's in the novelization. There mm-hmm. was even a, a original version of, of the script where Bowie was going to be in the real world um, 
uh, you know, supposedly, I guess, is Jareth masquerading as mm-hmm. the author of the play that she was practicing for. So they definitely kind of played with a lot with him having a counterpart in real life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because David Bowie was interviewed and said that he thinks uh, Jareth resents his position as Goblin King and yearns for a different life, probably living somewhere down in Soho. <laughs> Soho. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, um, the, the casting of this also, too, with, with um, you know, I guess Jennifer Connelly obviously wasn't always a lock because she wasn't that well known but um they uh originally because uh, they shot in england um helena bonham carter auditioned for the role but then they decided like you know once they saw a bunch of young uh, british actresses they wanted to go a different way and they started you know they went back to america and uh they did auditions and some of the names are kind of interesting here trev uh jane krakowski yasmine bleeth sarah jessica parker Marissa Tomei, Laura Dern, Ali Sheedy, Maddie Corman, and Mia Sarah. The only person I'm not familiar with there is Maddie Corman. Do you know who that is? No, I don't know who that is. But Yeah, that's the only one. But it's funny, like, out of all of those, I mean, I can see, like, almost any of those, you know, right. easily just, like, fitting in. Because, I mean, it's not like it's a complicated part to play. No, yeah. And it's kind of interesting, <laughs> like you said, like, with... Um, you know, I guess the best way to say it, obviously, was that um, Jennifer Connelly was just still kind of green at this point. But um, it would have been kind of interesting and weird because this would have, I guess it would have been, the auditions would have definitely been before the movie came out. But I feel like Ali Sheedy kind of would, at the time, would have been the biggest name out of all of them. But I think maybe she would have been too old in my eyes. I can't see like a... You know, because, like, if you picture her in The Breakfast Club, she kind of seems like an adult playing a high schooler. You know what I mean? What about some SJP, Sarah Jessica Parker? Could you have worked with that in this film? Nah. <laughs> it wouldn't have been my top choice, you know? Now, again, with the optical illusions, Trev, did you notice that, that it looks like, first it looks like a, a stone carving of half a Bowie's face, but then as the camera moves by, it's actually three different pieces of rock that you have to look at from a certain angle that look like Bowie's face. And then Bowie immediately appears leaning up against the rock. Like, yeah, there's a lot of neat little touches like that throughout the film. Just, yeah, that was just blowing me away on this latest rewatch, and I don't. I guess I was taking it for granted the other times because I think I got this on Blu-ray. Uh, I want to say twenty. It'd been out for a few years on Blu-ray. I have the original Blu-ray version. I want to say I got this like right around 2014 because it was only like a year or two after they did the new edition. So, I mean, I've watched this a couple times over the last couple of years, but something about it, maybe because I was, like, literally watching it for this show, I was looking more at the keen eye, but a lot of these visual things were just blowing me away, the, you know, stuff we don't see anymore. This is where Bowie starts playing with Hoggle more, playing on his, you know, like, oh, you're not going to really betray me, are you, Hoggle, and all that. Again with the crystal ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, shades of like a uh, phantasm too a little exactly bit. it's always got something for everybody in it <laughs> it does and see like we're in a totally fake set and we got some real birds in the background like i don't know like i just the blend of the you know the mixture of the the fake and the real like like i guess maybe this is just would be in all honesty like too expensive to do now or something i've always been wanting somebody to go and just do a completely 
practical movie yet again, like Dark Crystal or Labyrinth. I'm really curious what's going to happen with that Dark Crystal Netflix miniseries, and then I'm assuming if Labyrinth spinoff ever come does come to fruition, I'm I'm assuming that would be a streaming type thing as well, but I could be wrong. So here he is, basically Goblin King is trying to make Hoggle a deal to betray Jennifer Connelly. But at the same time, at the worst, he promises him to make him the prince of a, the stench <laughs> bog or whatever. <laughs> now, Chad, we got to talk about this moment here, because this is actually my favorite moment of the film. But unfortunately, it features some of the worst special effects. Yeah, it's really jarring, right? Because you were just talking about all like the amazing so practical sets and everything. And then suddenly we go into like the only like pure green screen yeah. like element of the film. Basically, I mean, they're they're like monkey-like creatures, even though they're pretty much made up of red feathers, and they're like they're super crazy to the point like they rip their own hands and heads off. And I think that was the reason for the green screening here, because mm-hmm. they're all kind of singing and dancing around Jennifer Connelly, and um, basically, I guess the puppeting was obviously way too com- complex that the the puppets had to be against a green screen. Which, you know, I guess to hide the puppeteers or whatever, which meant, and it kind of sucks because it, besides the the obviously like green screening effect that's real obvious, it's like you can notice that the background is all of a sudden like really static, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's got that bad like kind of green screen like haze like around her even. And yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, I love the, absolutely love the imagination that's going on with the characters here, you know? Like, I think this is pretty, like, almost, I don't know, even if maybe in an animated form you could get away with doing this in a children's film now. It's just almost so terrifying or whatever. Oh, you mean pulling off their body parts and throwing them around? Yeah. And... Like, they, like one guy pops his head off and everybody's kicking it like a soccer ball, dribbling it. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, this, these were the creatures I was talking about in the beginning of the movie. There was kind of like a stuffed animal version of that looked very similar to them in the bedroom as well. So... But yeah, I'm I'm, tr- I'm trying to I'm trying to think. And then there's one guy who's like literally using his his head as a ball to basically roll and walk on. But I'm trying to I'm trying to think, especially this one that kind of looks like the fuzzy faced dog. It reminds me so much of, uh, you know, who it looks like that one that's like got the whiskers like a dog. It looks just like Splinter from from the Ninja Turtles movie that Henson made. They just like dusted it off later and yeah. spray painted it. Like it really looks like they just replaced the feathers on the head with the uh, the brown fur, <laughs> but the nose and everything like it looks the same. Yeah, and like they're literally climbing all over her and stuff. I think after the hands uh, that grabbed Jennifer Connelly and was like grabbing her from everywhere, I think these are the most inappropriate characters in the labyrinth. It's like when I watch scenes like this that I kind of like, I don't know, I'm interested in like the reboot or sequel, whatever it's going to be. But it's like, what do you like? It's going to walk that fine line of how much of it is just going to be trotting out all these characters for nostalgia and then actually trying to create new things, you know? Yeah, I agree with you. I love some of the camera work through the trees and whatnot. It really helped sell this uh, fake forest. And I was thinking because it was shot at Elstree, like. I'm pretty sure what we're seeing now, it has to be some of the uh, fake forests from um, 
that I don't know who made it first or what happened, but it has to be the same fake forest stuff that was in Legend, don't you think? Because it looks very similar. This part. Oh yeah, could be. But I know, but I know the legend said at least partially burned down because of the, you know, it was like a lot of toxic uh, fumes in these, these fake plants or walls or whatever. Well, yeah. thankfully Jennifer Connelly did not have her head ripped off in no. that sequence. But literally, those guys' heads are like their ears are like wings, and they're just flapping up and down talking. Oh. And then, you know, you crawl up out of the, uh, what do they say, out of, the, out of the frying pan into the fire. You crawl the one thing. Next thing you know, you fall in a trap door. And now you're, like, hanging off this, like, huge cliff. Oh. Well, so, like, so Jareth said earlier that if she kissed Hog, Hoggle, he would make him the, the prince of the bog of eternal stench. And right. in a moment of elation, she did kiss him on the cheek. And here we go. I know. All I can think about, too, is, like, because Hoggle kind of has the hots for her, is how old he is. Like, never mind mm-hmm. that he's, like, a, a troll gnome, whatever. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's why I don't <laughs> I don't like that element of it. <laughs> yeah, it's very... It'd be different if he was, like, just a deformed little creature that was also a young person, you know? But but he's got, like, the furry eyebrows, like an old person would have and whatnot. He just looks like, uh, like somebody's grandfather. He really does, like somebody's large nose grandfather. He's gonna have a bunch of ear hair, ear hair coming out too. Yeah, and he, like I would be surprised if you saw Hago like old country buffet or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And like he has a hat on, but it's clearly like like really really white, like uh, grandpa hair coming out from the back. Right. But I guess this is maybe a good time. I want to d- dive into it. Um, Let's throw it out there. Um, obviously, we're both of the younger generation. When, uh, in terms of uh, you know, relation to when David Bowie was first popular as a you know whatever. So, like, how did you kind of discover Bowie, and what time period was it? Well, you know, it's interesting. I if I think back, I wouldn't be surprised if this film was actually my first you know encounter with David Bowie. That makes um, sense. But I mean, David Bowie was one of those, you know, it's hard for people much younger than us to remember this. But I mean, you know, you think you think today about how like popular musicians are, are you know, kind of big celebrities. But that's it's nothing like what it was in the 80s. Right. You had just these rock stars who were who were gods yeah. who were just kind of ubiquitous everywhere. And Bowie was certainly one of those throughout the 80s, I felt like. Um, and so it's like, it's, you know, even as a kid, I kind of always knew who he was. And, you know, he was interested and, like, would, his stuff would come on MTV. And I was like, oh, yeah, David Bowie, he's fine. And it wasn't until I was about, I want to say 14 or 15 when I started really getting into him. And uh, interestingly enough, like, the first Bowie album that I specifically remember going and buying and, like, really digging was one that's now uh, a lot of people don't really uh, like a lot, which is Earthling. Yeah. So in 97, which is his, like, techno album. But uh, I remember just being really impressed with that because I was into like, you know, stuff like Nine Inch Nails and so at the time. And that was him kind of trying to, you know, kind of ride that wave. And I think that's why a lot of people don't like that album, because it's one of the few times that he was following a trend rather than creating the trend. Yeah. But I think that album is awesome, actually. And I wish people would kind of give it another shot. I, I love uh, I'm Afraid of Americans. I think it's like one of his best songs. 
And then like, so I got it like, so at like 17, I got like really into him. And then I went back and kind of got all the old stuff and, uh, it just kind of kept growing and growing. And then like, I don't know, I, I didn't take very long to, I was like, well, this is like the best, this is like, to me, it's like my favorite, uh, musical performer ever, which he still is today. And it was because at that time, I think Bowie is really important for me because I, I, this is, might be true of you too. Go when there's a, certainly a time when you're young and you just think like anything on the radio is good. Yeah. And then hopefully you meet some friends with like better musical taste who start getting <laughs> yeah. you into like like more indie stuff and like punk and like things that don't get a lot of mainstream exposure. And Bowie was definitely like my key into that of also like uh, and also the Beatles as I started to get more into them of the idea that an artist can evolve and doesn't have to be the same over and over and over again. And so I loved going back and getting old Bowie albums and being like, oh, this one's nothing like the other one I just listened to. And that's still today what I what I always reference when I talk about why I love him is the idea that every album is different than the one that preceded it. And uh, I just think he's like the best example of that. And the theatricality, the characters, you know, the the costumes, just like everything about it seemed like primed for me to, to dig this guy. Yeah, for for me, is like he he was really kind of around in the background of, of my childhood. Um, I remember the only Bowie album we, or CD we had in the house was Let's Dance, like right around the time it came out. I think it's true of most of America, right? Yeah, and it was kind of funny though. Like the reason we had it, it was just because um, at the time uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan actually was like the session player or the whatever, you know, studio musician who played on a lot of Let's, Let's Dance, the album, not just the song, but the album. And um, my dad, he he had heard a lot about Stevie Ray Vaughan, so he went to see him live, and it was like, you know, it was just a Stevie Ray Vaughan show because he was like, oh, this you know, this guy plays with David Bowie. He's got to be pretty good, you know, you know, being a studio musician for Bowie. And um, my dad saw him and then ended up getting the Bowie album just to kind of give it, like, a closer listen. So, like... That one, you know, and then, and then like I would listen to it a little bit throughout the years, and then I like, kind of got into kind of like all around the same time for me it was more like around the age of nineteen to like maybe twenty one. I was like into all these people that were into David Bowie, like Trent Reznor, and there was even like an MTV like promo where Reznor was talking about Bowie and was talking about like. Uh, like his first memory, I guess, or just one of his early memories of seeing Bowie's Ashes to Ashes video. And like, I just always saw that promo. I was like, you know, so obviously that held a lot of sway with me. And then also I was a big Stone Temple Pilots uh, fan and Scott Weiland was always talking about Bowie and it, it never really like made sense until Weiland made his solo album, um, 12 Bar Blues, which is really like a fuzzy, like whatever, kind of album but 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 you but you but in both his stage presence he got really thin and he kind of did, did the bowie thing for a while like the thin white duke thing and so i was just like like really like two of my favorite musicians at the time we were always talking about david bowie so and then the trifecta was i really got into iggy pop at the same time because i was really more into punk rock at the time so i got some iggy pop records and uh you know, I got, uh, what is it, Raw Power that's actually produced by Bowie. So, mm-hmm. so like, I was just like, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I went and started picking up some Bowie albums by myself. And uh, I think the first one I got was Low, which is maybe my still my favorite Bowie album. And then I got Heroes. 
And then it was around the time, like, Earthling had been out for, like, maybe a year. So I'd seen all the videos. Like, I was really familiar with it. So I liked that album, too. So I got Earthling. So, like, yeah. And, and like, just over the years, I, you know, picking up more albums of his. And I meant to buy them all. But it was really hard at the time to buy Bowie albums. Because they are constantly coming out with, like, better remasters and all this shit. So mm-hmm. I kind of, like, weighed it. But over the years, you know, obviously with stuff like Spotify and whatnot, you can like listen to it all now. You don't have to wait to get that into you know, every single collect every single album and whatnot. And like I really I wanna say and also too, like like I, I really dug um uh the Heart's Filthy Lesson that was uh there was like a version of it I think on on the credits of seven. So like I don't know, like I guess there's in my late teens, early twenties I became really like aware of like what Bowie was and why he was so different. Well, no, you're right. Cause I mean that, that time you're right. Like right around 96, 97 was definitely like the first kind, not first, but I mean, that was when there was like kind of a Bowie resurgence yeah. kind of comeback thing where, and you're right. There was like kind of filtered by, you know, him touring with nine inch nails and then Reznor putting him on the lost highway soundtrack and, and more and more artists of that, like ilk talking about him. And, uh, and it seemed like he was, uh, it was like I don't know. I don't think it was. I don't think Bowie cared necessarily, but there was like a concerted effort to make a younger generation care about David Bowie, yeah. and uh, and it worked. I think, and it was and it, it was nice work. to see it. Yeah, and I think the reason it did work, and I mean, no offense to these bands, because you know, like I mean, you know, you know, music and music is like you know, but like I think it really appealed to me at the time. Because I was also getting into a lot of other British bands at the time, too. But, like, especially with what Bowie was offering, not just in his 90s output, but just going to his back catalog, he really offered something that the current bands at the time, like Smash Mouth and Sugar Ray and Limp Bizkit, like, those bands weren't offering what Bowie was offering, you know, from an mm-hmm. imagination standpoint, I'll say, you know. So, I mean... I don't know. It just, it just it made a lot of sense, and that was also the time where "quote unquote" alternative music, which really just meant music that wasn't like catchy pop tunes. You know what I mean? Like it yeah. still had an outlet with MTV, and then around that time MTV Two came out, and you had alternative radio stations that would play things. And you know, I remember listening to like college radio stations at the time, and it was really great because you could hear all this stuff, and you could listen for an hour or two and not hear the same songs over and over you know well that was like when you said that yeah that time period we're talking about i think when we talk about like them trying to make him cooler to younger generation they also kind of played him off as like the elder statesman of like the alternative rock scene you know he was like the the grandpa of that of that movement which is funny because if you go back and i mean i i get it but the majority of his work doesn't really fit into that sound of alternative rock. Um, no, it, no, it doesn't. And like, if you really look at a lot of his eighties output, which would have been the previous decade, that was his intentionally overly commercial time. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, but no, I just, I just feel like, you know, it's funny too, cause he, he was the elder statesman, but he was really only in like his early fifties at the time, you know? Yeah. It's still mind boggling. Sometimes it's still mind boggling to me how big like Let's Let's Dance actually got. Yeah, it it's not like it's not like I don't like Let's Dance, but it's like man, for all yeah. this like 
amazingly interesting albums he'd done before then for that one to be the one it just tells you something about like what you need to do to be mega popular i guess but. right and i mean like i you know i you just like i don't know like i i really like that period for me too because i like that he was covering some you know i like hearing his versions he did like some iggy pop songs literally as a way just to help iggy out financially like china girl and then that's kind of like when i have a soft spot for never let me down is he does a cover of bang bang on there which i really like and i also really like the iggy version but i mean like yeah like i don't know like it just it 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 was a weird time and like but i think the thing that was good about that time and i know what you're saying like that time period is good but it's not like the best Mm -hmm. but i think if that time period didn't play out the way it did i don't think we would have got the 90s bowie that we ended up getting which was very cool i think yeah when you say like he really you know i know we're we totally like you know going off whatever book here but you know we intended that but don't you when you say like it was probably the album outside right is where that whole idea of alternative bowie kind of started oh yeah for sure and i know like um I think it's like Brian Eno still talks about how like him and Bowie be- like shortly before Bowie's death were talking about going back and like remastering that album and kind of remixing it a lot because they yeah. thought there was still like more to be done with it. That but, would uh, be awesome. Yeah, but outside it was like it definitely like moved him in that direction of like uh, that Nine Inch Nails kind of realm, right? right? Where it made sense for him to be. I mean, that's where the Heart's Filthy Lesson comes from, and that has that that sound to it. Where it makes sense for him to be on a soundtrack of a movie like Seven or Lost Highway. So, well, but essentially, because it didn't last very long, right? Because no. then you have like like Earthling, but then Hours, which follows Earthling, is very traditional sounding. I think it is, and it makes you wonder like why Bowie wanted to go back to traditional. And I, I really like Hours too. I really like uh, uh, I really like Thursday's Child, but Thursday's Child. I don't know why I've listened to that song for years and years. And I kind of, and I'm sure it's intentional or whatever, but like, is it just me or is like on that song, does his voice sound like kind of intentionally bad? <laughs> like a secret? <laughs> yeah, know. I don't know. I, ours is okay, but I, I really love uh, Heathen, the next one. Yeah. I think Heathen is, is fantastic. So I'm going to jump back and talk about this actual movie for about 30 more seconds and then we're going to jump back into Bowie talk. <laughs> um well, because we did uh, really quickly, we totally talked over the introduction of like the the last main character, which is uh, Didymus. Yeah, right Sir, after they Sir escaped Didymus. the bog. Yeah. It's like a he's a, what would you say? He's like a little swashbuckling cavalier type doll rat person. Who's yeah, like, he's actually really fun. I really wish yeah. he was in the movie earlier because right. he adds like a lot of spark to. But it comes along at a point where the movie could start to threaten to feel like a little long in the tooth. Yeah, and I think he shows up at a good time because he really livens it up. And, and we should say he's like literally probably like what a twelve inch puppet that rides around yeah. on her dog, because her dog just magically kind of appeared in the world too. We, we he's kind of like if uh, Rizzo Rizzo from the Muppets was right, like a, right. an adventurer, yeah. And then that led into Bowie kind of let the the glass balls like he let a lot of them go almost like a phantasm like way. And the, one of them eventually reached Jennifer Connelly, and then she had a fantasy of a, like a, a like an old French Victorian ball, which she danced with the Goblin King, and that's kind of where the romance between forty-year-old David Bowie and fourteen-year-old Jennifer Connelly—that's like that's where the first romantic spark kind of gets kicked up. 
Which was a great, it actually was a great sequence into itself, and then when the ball smashes and all that. And then it goes kind of into the darkest hour right here. But one thing we weren't talking about in our extensive uh, kind of re-whatever of the Bowie uh, discography is kind of the transition in between, let's say, the low of the Never Let Me Down period and then the high of the outside period was... Um, was he he was so sick of like kind of the mainstream whatever success of the 80s that he wanted to disappear again and to you know he wanted to actually just disappear and just be a part of a band so there was mm -hmm. a two album experiment called Tin Machine what what as a as a huge Bowie fan what do you think of Tin Machine uh I love the first one and not so hot on the second one yeah, that's what everybody says, and like I've I've given them both, you know, a listen a handful of times, maybe three times each, and like I'm not offended by it in any way. I'm not like all oh, this sucks or anything, but <coughs> I'm just I I kind of fall into that camp of people that like Bowie just couldn't disappear like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, look, sometimes you know, like we always say, like sometimes you have to know your limitations. Sometimes you have to know your lack of limitations. You know, it's right. it's a nice idea to think you can just be a part of a band but no you're david bowie you're you're gonna overpower right. whatever you're in and it, there's just i i would think even the other guys in tin machine probably knew like mm, no actually this you you should be david bowie and i and i really hate to say it i hate to just be negative about such an acclaimed musician but i was never like that crazy about the style of uh what's his name reeves gabriel what like, would you ever make of of kind of his unique playing style of guitar and whatnot i mean i it, i don't have like i don't have a i'm not down on it but i'm not like all about it i guess yeah. just kind of yeah it, you know like i said it, it's not bad i can i have listened to both albums numerous times you know stream them or whatever but like yeah i don't know it just it, it's like it's it's not necessarily like an experiment that i would say is a failed experiment but to me it's like it's like Bowie kind of cruising along at kind of like 50 to 70 percent power and like you just want him to go full <laughs> but i think I mean? it's like i think it's an important point though because yeah. it is like so tin machine is trying to be like a little bit more like hard rock yeah and i don't and i don't think without tin machine i don't think we get earthling right. or or maybe even outside i think he needed that i needed he needed that like spark to like move him out of um you know whatever never let me down was i guess but yeah well, no, we also should say too that he he, he claims to not rem actually remember much about the production of Never Let Me Down. So, I think maybe that was like his last drug fueled period. I guess I don't know. That's his Cujo. Yeah, it's his Cujo where he just woke up and <laughs> Never Let Me Down existed literally. <laughs> but I don't know. Like I just. I don't know, like, like not that it's a disappointment, but, like, I, I, I wish artists wouldn't, like, divorce themselves from the, their work, because I just always, I always feel like somewhere out there, there's somebody that likes that book, or likes that record. Oh, yeah, of course. Movie, you know? I mean, they, I mean, people talk about that a lot, you know, like, so, like, uh, you know, like, I know Don Coscarelli talks a lot about how he hates Beastmaster, yeah. and it's, like, odd to him that how many people love it, and, like, yeah, I'm sure there's got, there's someone out there who never let me down as their favorite Bowie album, it's just... The law of averages always seems to suggest that. But uh, 
What is, I so I mean this makes sense considering we're watching a film. And by the way, this thing is like this creature is yeah. kind of terrifying. Um, it's ba- it's basically a goblin lady who literally has an entire junk pile on her back. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jennifer Connelly is like kind of like lost her memory from what I gather from this. Yeah, because uh, Hoggle she, gave her like that peach to eat. That yeah, and Gareth she had the whole Victorian ball, mm-hmm. you know, thing. So she started hallucinating that she was actually, like, back in her room and everything was okay, but she didn't remember anything about her brother being gone, kind of. Mm-hmm. That's what I took out of it. And then the junk lady kind of says, no, you're really actually, like, in this shitty junkyard. And, you know, I would say, definitely say this scene is, like, the dark before the, well, literally the dark before the dawn type scene, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So we uh, we talked about you know our love of Bowie the musician, but what about Bowie the actor? Um, You know, I feel like it's it's gotten talked about more since his his death. Unfortunately, I wish people talked about it more before then. But uh, it's you know, I hopefully like people keep revisiting the films he was in and realizing like what an amazing screen presence he was too. And I really wish we'd gotten more of that. I wish he had acted a little bit more than he did. Yeah, like it's funny because like. I remember during the 90s wishing he was just in more, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to bring up his whole kind of whatever here, just to read it through, but for some reason IMDb wants to suck. But but obviously his, uh, okay, here we go. Let's see, as an actor, because I'm curious where his very first starting role was. I think his first starring role was The Man Who Fell to Earth, right? Let's see... Well, he, I guess it was before his stuff launched. He has, like, a bunch of, like, literally credits as extras, I guess, on either shorts or TV movies. Mm-hmm. And then, like, yeah, and then, then his first reel, yeah, The Man Who Fell to Earth, which was a movie. How did you how did you discover The Man Who Fell to Earth? I'm just curious. You know, I saw it when I was pretty young. I thought, like, when I was, like, you know, that time where I was getting into Bowie. Um, so, you know, like, 15, 16 and I liked it. And then when he passed away, the next weekend, one of the local theaters here, like one of the local art theaters here, uh, the Redford, the one that actually is featured at the beginning of it follows. Nice. They did like a they did like a Bowie tribute thing where they showed the man who fell to earth and you went and they showed music videos for a while first and then showed a 35 millimeter print of that. And I was just like, uh, it was great seeing it on the big screen. But I was also like, man, I can't believe I liked this as a 15-year-old because it's really weird and yeah, really requires your patience. And uh, it's, it's very but it's, I think I, I think I appreciate it more now than I did then. Yeah, I actually, believe it or not, it was um, a movie that was like very talked about, obviously. And at the time I was into Bowie, it was like around the time DVD was coming out. And it was like literally like maybe the fifth or sixth DVD I ever bought. Because, like, at the time, there was no other way for me to see it because there was, like, no video stores had any, or at least around in my area, had video tape copies. So I just blind bought it. And especially during the early days of DVD, I was always happy to, uh, you know, like, rewatch a movie, no matter what movie it was that I bought many times. So, like, I really, like, watched it probably three times in the first year that I owned the DVD. And, uh, yeah, like, I mean, I just, I don't know, like... I think in a way, though, to really like the movie, and maybe you'll disagree, Trev, but I think you kind of have to be a Bowie fan. What do you think? I think it. I think the person who's going to like that movie the most is going to be a Bowie fan. Because it's really... Because it very feels tied into, like, a lot of his kind of, like, yeah. uh, 
you know that so that whole sci-fi rock aesthetic he had going at that time and you know the z stardust alien kind of stuff and then like that was like in the 70s like late or mid 70s and then it wasn't until like 83 he had like another major role in the hunger which i had seen the hunger when i was a kid when i of course reset it i actually I, I i bought a videotape of it before the dvd was out so i was like pretty familiar with the hunger mm-hmm. and uh that's like one of my favorite bowie performances he had two uh two big ones in 83 because he also had merry christmas mr lawrence yeah which is a movie i actually did a uh a youtube review over a few years ago i i got it as a gift when it came out on criterion love that movie as well i mm-hmm. think it's insanely underrated Mm-hmm. And well, then like, Criterion put it out, so I mean, yeah. And then like, I think the only one of his that I haven't really seen, I think it's just a supporting role. Is uh, I've seen parts of it on cable, but he was in Into the Night, which was kind of like a Goldblum, mm-hmm. like early whatever. And then um, you've never seen Into the Night? That's like such a goat kind of movie. I know, and not in its entirety, um, but. Uh, but yeah, like so basically like he kind of drifted off like middle like besides Mr. Lawrence, he kind of did like supporting roles. Yeah, he uh, pops up as uh Pontius Pilate and uh Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah, 86 is the same year as Labyrinth. He did Absolute Beginners, which I know we've talked about off air. I don't know if it's something we can actually do a show about. Like I kind of wish we could, but I don't know what I would talk about the whole time because <laughs> because he has a pretty small role and the rest of it is just kind of like a bizarre, mm-hmm. you know. But um, this is a movie, I and mean, you might not have even seen this, but I I don't know if I could if we could do a show on it. But like one movie, and I've only seen it on cable a handful of times. I think I've seen it actually three times now. Have you ever seen the Linguini incident? I have not. Okay, it's 91. It was like an independent movie. It's very, like, it's it's not bizarre in, like, a whatever way. It's just bizarre that Bowie made this movie. So, so this is basically it, the synopsis. Two disgruntled restaurant employees, played by David Bowie and Roseanne Arquette, decide to rob their employers, played by Buck Hendry and Andre Gregory. It's like... It's almost like kind of like a neurotic New York type independent film. I don't know how to describe mm-hmm. it other than that. Mm-hmm. But like that's pretty much like his main stuff through the 80s. Like he didn't do that much. Yeah. And then like by the time he got, I'm trying to, am I missing? Like I know he did like some, well they weren't directing video, video over there, but he did like a movie with Goldie and shit, like a British, like whatever gangster movie. And then he did, like, in Basquiat, he was Andy Warhol. Well, he had the most crazy scene in uh, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Right. He had a small... Like, he just was really doing cameos, I think. Mm-hmm. And then, like, that was it, pretty much. Well, that, so, and then he has a great cameo as himself in Zoolander, which was right. a great moment. And then, um, and they really kind of got brought back in a... I don't want to say prominence, but, I mean, I remember when he played Tesla in The Prestige... Yeah. That everyone everyone talked about how great he was in that. And I remember a, a lot of discussion that time again about how like wow why doesn't he act more often? Yeah. But you know I also remember that time um, like Len Wiseman talking about how he really wanted David Bowie to play uh, you know a leader of one of the covens like one of the vampire covens in the Underworld series. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, I feel like it was like Wiseman's kind of like well I was just always you know we didn't even bother to ask him. Yeah. And I feel like there was just kind of like vibe around him that maybe people were too intimidated to ask him to be in films. Yeah. 
And I wonder if he would have actually been in a lot more if people hadn't thought that he was like above well, it or whatever. You know, I think that was with the the resurgence of Bowie in the nineties, but I think if you you know, in the mid to late nineties, I think people were just like, Oh, he's too big of a star, he won't fuck around this but like if he was willing to do something like the Linguini incident, like around ninety one, yeah. like I th- I think he would have been game, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I agree with you. I think the last kind of major good role he did have was in The Prestige. And that's actually, my, his part is actually my by far my favorite part of that movie. Mm-hmm. But to do some justice so back to Labyrinth, we finally reached the part where the whole team is really like kind of trying to storm the castle, so to speak. And they're like in the surrounding village around uh, Goblin King's castle. And I have to say, like, this is one of my favorite parts of the movie where they start fighting there's there's basically all these uh goblins that are on like uh horseback kind of but if you but if you if you kind of figure it out it's kind of like the things that they're riding is more the legs of uh like the puppeteer i guess you know mm-hmm. and then it has like these smaller puppets up on top and i have to say like you can tell kind of like maybe a lot of this is like forced perspective and whatnot but i i really enjoy all the the visual trigger. I mean, it's just kind of nonsense, like all this fighting and they're trying to hide in these houses. But I mean, th- this to me is kind of like movie magic right here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, this is just like pure creativity unbound. There's just so much going on in this whole sequence. And like the the shooting the cannonball that has a guy inside it and him getting embedded in the wall and everything. And then even like that little like you look in the background, there's some strange Jabberwocky-ish thing flying by yeah. in the background for some reason. And and again, it's just great uh, forced perspective models of the rest of the town and stuff, you know. But, I mean, you can't really tell that. You just you just know that's how it had to be done. And, you know, all these hordes of these, which were obviously probably, you know, drawers or whatnot in costume. I mean, it just, I don't know. It's just, like, this almost is like some Monty Python-esque, you know, mm-hmm. insanity right here. And it wouldn't really matter how many times you watch this film. You're, there's always going to be something new to like notice. Wondering oh, I, yeah, this. I agree with that completely. Because I've watched this... Well, I know since I've owned the Blu-ray the last couple of years, this is was at least my third time watching it, and there was so much stuff I was still picking up, you know? Here we come. It's basically like an avalanche of... Uh, rocks because one thing we didn't really talk about is there actually are like sentient boulders and rocks in this universe Mm -hmm. and you know they're they're obviously they're good guys so like this is some great stuff here where the boulders come through and obviously they're like paper mache or rubber boulders but there's some great stuff with all the different characters running to and fro and you know we're talking about the whole monty python thing every time i see this and i see the the little people in the costumes I just I always automatically think of time bandits, which I don't really like that much. You know, you know I don't. I'd have to sit down and give it another honest rewatch, but in like here, here we have some nice reverse motion things, obviously to make the boulders run uphill. But um, in recent times, you know, I'd say DVD era on. You know, like whenever I try to watch it on cable or whatever, I don't I don't own a copy. Like I never really get into it. But man, as a kid, Time Bandits was really hidden for me as a kid. It was, I, I'm pretty sure we went to see it. And then also I remember it was always on cable when I was young. You know what I mean? 
I just yeah, I feel like Time Bandits is one of those films that like when you say you don't like it around people of a certain generation, they're they're just they just can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just never really done it for me. I mean, actually, I, kind of oddly enough, I kind of feel like I prefer Baron Munchausen. Really. Hmm. I mean, I would definitely prefer like Labyrinth over you know Time Bandits. I mean. Yeah. But I don't know. Just I think just when you're a kid, little people fascinate you. And plus, it was a story of of a the protagonist was like a six year old boy or whatever. So. Well, they're adults. They're on your level, right? That's I think that's right. what it's. Yeah, this was appealing. And I feel like a lot of this with the weaponry and the machinery of the Goblin Army, a lot of it kind of reminds me of the kind of stuff I like. I see in um, like Mario games. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the little walking cannon characters and whatnot. I love that, uh, the boulder falling on that guy and just smashing him. Yeah. And earlier, we, I, I kind of glossed over it, but the, there was actually a big ball that ran into like a lo- kind of like a group of six guys, and they all flew up like bowling pins. Kind of. mm-hmm. This is the point, like, so when that sequence ends, though, so we just did get to the end, because that, that whole, like, sequence is amazing. Yeah. But this is where the movie starts to feel like maybe a little long in the tooth, right? Yeah. Like it's pretty it's pretty long for a kid's movie. It it is. It's like what is it? Uh an hour and forty one minutes. Um something, yeah. Yeah. And uh to me it always felt more draggy during the early parts of her going through the labyrinth before she like they get the whole team together. Because mm-hmm. it's kind of just like, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, she meets the 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 one guys that are like stacked on top of each other and they let her through the door and then the later they meet the doorbell guys like during that stuff it, it kind of seems repetitive to me but i know what you're saying because i think that that whole sequence we just watched with all the the dwarf troll like goblin combat i think that was it's almost like good enough to be the finale of a film and now we come into like the one-on-one the kind of like yeah the boss fight with the goblin king which is where all the MC Escher kind of, you know, influence, you know, and I don't care what anybody's, and I'm sure he would probably tell you too, but obviously MC Escher, but I think Scott Derrickson had to be really influenced by this with this whole, you know, in terms of actually bringing it to life in a film, the whole Dr. Strange thing. Well, what, this is 87, right? Wait, 86. 86. What came first, this or Nightmare on Elm Street 5? <laughs> oh, no, this by, by far. Okay, because Nightmare on Elm Street 5 also culminates in a sequence yeah. just like this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, don't quote me on this, but I'm, I'm really sure that Elm Street 5 is 89. 89, yeah. Because 3 was 87, and then I'm pretty sure 4 was 88. And then five, it was like they were literally cranking them out once a year at that point, you know. There's actually quite a, like, uh, I was going to say this earlier, but this film has, like, a lot of weird, like, Nightmare on Elm Street-ish elements to it. It does. And the, the ending of To the point where even she'll, like, try, she'll, she'll try to take away Jareth's power by saying she doesn't believe in him, right? Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, she does for a second. Yeah. And for people who, who haven't really seen the film or don't quite remember, maybe it's been a long time since they've seen it, this is basically a castle full of stairways that go up, go sideways, and we get all these different kind of composite together views. Like the baby is crawling on the ceiling, she's crawling, she's trying to run up the stairs sideways, Bowie's off in another section. Like it's kind of like a maze of just thing, you know, these weird, like I said, just 
just Google MC Escher and look at some of the stuff, you know. It's probably an editor's dream because it doesn't matter how you edit this sequence. Right. Yeah, there's no uh, wrong continuity, so to speak. But it, you know what it also reminds me of is, um, it's funny you brought up Nightmare, was this whole sequence, like the end of uh, um, Wes Craven's new Nightmare, reminds me a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's kind of like the fairy tale, like kind of just weird. Like, But like you said, yeah, part five or whatever it was, like it really rips it off big time. But I, Well, then... Um... I feel like because you're talking about like the way these sets are like amazing to this film and everything about this practical stuff and just thinking like imagine if they could have made like a full Nightmare on Elm Street movie with like this visual style right right like the dreams you go into are more like this I mean maybe it wouldn't seem as scary but I don't know it just seems like it would feel appropriate yeah I, I think definitely if they could have done something like this on a large scale it could have you know even extended the lifespan of Freddy Krueger a couple more years the baby's good in this I gotta give props to the baby's acting yeah sure Finally. that's I love that's a great visual yeah. like the falling and like the pieces of the castle kind of floating around her cause she kind of I mean I see some strings but whatever yeah. you know yeah I was gonna say watching this again um I watched this movie, this Blu-ray I should say I watched this Blu-ray a couple times on 1080p sets last night was the first time watching it you know, I'll convert it to a 4K set. And I have to say, I, I did on the 4K set notice a lot more strings on the puppets and stuff throughout the movie. And I'm sure they're visible in 1080p, but for some reason I was seeing them more. What's your thought on this uh, this costume for Jareth? Yeah. Jareth, he just ascended and became Jareth the White, apparently. Yeah, like, like I was taking it that this was his, his, uh, his like, in-between owl, <laughs> like, costume, mm-hmm. right? It's kind, yeah. of, it's kind of like he takes on the characteristics of the owl or whatever. We never, I mean, obviously we talk about the whole get-up overall, but we never talk about Bowie's hair in this, which it, it had to be a wig. Nobody could actually grow their hair like this. But it's it's like a long hair, but, like, sections are kind of cut to just kind of stick up and be pointy and spiky. It's very anime style, like we said. Mm-hmm. And I don't well, like I said, I made that I made that joke earlier, but I mean, if you go look at like um, like Japanese metal bands now, I feel yeah. like they're all like inspired by this look. I agree, and I don't know what it is. Um, maybe you know, obviously, it would take a while to shoot a movie like this. I don't know if they shot this first, but for some reason, like Connolly actually looks younger in this part than she does pretty much the whole rest of the movie to me. I don't know why. Maybe it's because she's standing next to a 50-year-old man who's trying to come on to her. <laughs> that could be too. But I mean, I don't know. I, I, I feel like all movies, and I think Star Wars is the blame for this a little bit, but when you say after Star Wars, or not necessarily Star Wars, but Empire Strikes Back, every movie like kind of end it with like the confrontation of like the bad person all of a sudden like making the offer to the the hero character to just yeah you know well and i so i there's a a sequel comic book to this i don't know if you read about that called return no. to labyrinth no it was like a it was like a manga that they did that's a sequel and apparently that um picks up like years later and it expands more on the idea that i that i talked about that i think is very in in, uh like insinuated here but apparently it was more prevalent in previous drafts 
that he does want her to be his queen now. Right. And in like the comic book, you learn that he's kind of still obsessed with her and still thinks about her. And he actually, uh, it's in the future. Toby is now a teenager Wow. And he kind of brings Toby back and puts Toby in charge of like the labyrinth while he goes away on some like mission or something. And I think it's like, oh, I haven't read it. I'm just kind of going off of what yeah. I, the, the plot synopsis I read, but it, it's kind of, you know, I think she's still in there as a character and Jared is still trying to win her over. Yeah. It's, it, it, that's actually kind of an interesting job. I mean, at the, at the end of the day though, it's hard to do any type of direct sequel without Bowie. It's always going to feel like a letdown. Yeah. But, um, so, I mean, I get like, because you're talking earlier about how they decided not to bring the Goblin King back in this new one. But, uh, I mean, I get that. I get the, the level of respect. So I'm not going to like poo poo it. Yeah. But I also feel like you could have someone else play the Goblin oh, King. Sure, I don't think yeah. Bowie would be that offended by it or anything. No, I don't think he would be at all. I think. And, you know, it's it's like. I don't know, like, this movie, obviously it's been a cult movie for a long time, but, like, the merchandise and stuff, like, like really it coming back into the fold as being, like, a hot topic type of cult, whatever, with merchandise mm-hmm. sales, that's really been, like, the last five years where Bowie was really winding down, doing his, you know, his stage production, obviously his health issues and whatnot, but, I mean, I don't think... In it, by any stretch of the imagination, Bowie, before he passed, thought of the Goblin King as being something that was really even more than just a blip on his radar of his career. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't even, yeah, it's curious. I don't even know if even involving Jennifer Connelly, even in a cameo, is like the right way to go. You know what I mean? for wherever they are going to pick up. Well, I was just thinking, because I'm, I'm watching this scene now with all the friends coming back into her room and saying goodbye to her, right? And I'm picturing, yeah. like, do I, as someone who loves this movie, would I be interested in a film with, like, Jennifer Connelly now, where she suddenly is pulled back into this world, and it's that kind of, like, you know, return to Oz kind of thing? And I, right. and I think I would. I mean, I'd, I'd certainly be open to it. But yeah. then, if you have Jennifer Connelly, then the loss of Bowie is, like, more... Yeah, more like, apparent. Yeah, so maybe you you can't have her in it because then you need both of them. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm all for Jennifer Connelly to be in anything. No, I'm kind of shocked that she's not in like any mainstream movies at all now. Like she's still in a lot of great. She's movies. gonna be in um Alita: Battle Angel. Really interesting. Yeah. Like in full on appearance or like mocap type character. No, she's in it. She's like uh, one of the main uh, cast members, and then when they in the trailer, she's just Jennifer Connelly. So really. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, we here we have the celebration. You know, she goes back to the real world because she, she, uh, you know, turned down the Goblin King, rejected all his power, which brought her back to the real world. And here we have like all the characters, even the evil goblins, come back to like dance and be happy. Like, what do you mm-hmm. think about that? About the evil characters are like friendly now. Well, I mean, they were only ever under the control of Jareth, right? Who is like. Right you know, they're like ruling over them. So maybe they're not all bad, really, you know? And then the, then the owl, uh, flies away. So definitely the owl is Jareth, right? I mean, there's no Mm -hmm. mistake in that. So, yeah. yeah. I would have loved just an extra little beat where her parents come home and walk in the room and are just like, uh, what? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Cause that's what you expect. You expect like the weird science ending in terms of like, you know, like everything's going crazy magically until the last second the parents walk in. And obviously here's a who's who of, you know, character, like voice actors, puppeteers of the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I was just curious, like, what do you, th- you think, Trev, about the whole 
kind of obviously the Henson thing. And I know your feelings being disappointed with kind of like the Muppets going the way the Disney or whatever, you know, yeah. be left on the back burner. But Dark Crystal came out a couple years before this gross 40. I'm not sure what the budget is, but it grossed 40 million in the U.S. So obviously it was pretty well liked. This came out like two years later, I believe, mm-hmm. maybe three years later. And uh, it pretty much like, you know, kind of flopped in America. I'm not sure if it did too good overseas. I'm sure it eventually broke even on video and all that. But um, do you think maybe this kind of like the, the kind of financial failure of Labyrinth, unfortunately, kind of like maybe, you know, forget about like what we were talking about earlier with Lucas going off in fantasy direction. But I think it kind of really kind of put the end right to the Henson company as far as like full on blown producing major films. Yeah. Well, I, I believe Brian Henson said that like the failure of this really, really bothered Jim yeah. and, uh, that's, he never directed again and, uh, you just let it, you really let it get to him. Um, and it's, it's actually pretty mind boggling to me that, like I said, it's, it's odd to think of it as a bomb because it just seemed like it was so ubiquitous as a kid that it was on TV all the time right. and just, everyone loved it. And then, it's also strange to me that <coughs> of the two that Dark Crystal would be the one that's a bigger hit because it just seems like this has uh, – on paper, this seems like this is the one that should be the bigger of the two, right? right. Like you got a big star with Bowie. Um, it's like not as complex of a story. It just seems like everything seems to be working in its favor. You, but, you have a human main character, which you think mm-hmm. would make it you know, a little more easier to sell. Obviously, this came out in 86. Uh, Jim Henson passed away in 1990, uh, unfortunately. But I did see something where, where Brian said, you know, even by that point, it was apparent that Labyrinth was getting, you know, it had the support, I guess, on the home video and cable whatnot. So so uh, he, he said, you know, it was, it was kind of good that his, his dad, his dad was happy that it was like attaining that cult, you know. Yeah. So, I mean... Yeah, it's it's you know. I mean, it's a you know you could say it's a shame that you know, like you said, it did kind of bring an end to like what you know we would we would hope to have seen more of these kind of Henson movies. But the writing was on the wall, anyways. I mean, there's no way we would have had this kind of film go on for much longer. Uh, Any, it is too bad. Obviously, I think all of us still want movies like this, and I don't know. I know I, I think it's isn't it Fetty Alvarez that's attached to direct the new one. I believe um, so. I, like I, what I was reading was just more about the writing stage. I wasn't talking too much about mm-hmm. directors involved, but like I don't know. Like I, I like Fiddy Alvarez, but then when you hire a guy like that, I'm like, well, does that? What does that mean? You know, why are you not getting just one of the Henson people to direct it? Right. But then, what are the Henson people anymore? What is that company now? Um, yeah. Oh, look, I didn't even know. It does say at the end, Jim Henson acknowledges his debt to the works of Maurice Sendak. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But yeah, like uh, I know Brian was the one. Oh, thanks to the state of MCS, yeah, sure, because they had the print on the side, of, you know, the bedroom. But but yeah, like I know Brian kind of took over, and then I know Lisa Henson is really involved now. Mm-hmm. So I mean, yeah, but it's just. I well, I feel like Brian has been trying to make that like R-rated noir Muppet movie for like feels like fifteen years now. Yeah, unfortunately. It just, it just, I don't know. Like, I, I really hate to say it because it hurts me to say it because I love Dark Crystal, I love Labyrinth, I love, you know, I love the Muppets as a, as a kid, obviously, and it just, I, there's, 
it, it kills me to say this, but there is no place for that in today's films. It's it's all CGI cartoons, or it's you know obviously like some some film with a lot of you know CGI special effects. It's just for whatever reason, this is not this type of entertainment is not capturing kids. I mean, maybe it could if, if they were given a chance again, you know. But mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like for some reason, as a movie going public, we we've decided <laughs> no more. But I don't know. Yeah, it's like you know that you think of like there's still projects that obviously could call for this kind of thing. You know, I just like so. Um, I mean, just recently, not that it's a great film or anything, but Valerian, you know, right. that kind of that kind of sci-fi epic you wish would still and it was a little bit in there, but it just seems like there's still a place for the Henson Company to be as big as they used to be. But no, well, especially in this world of there's so many more outlets like other than just literally the theater or videotape, like they're streaming and all that, and just I don't know, I just. Like, you always hope that there's going to be that new project that breathes life into this type of creature making, you know? And it's just, I don't know. It's just, I, I guess it's just, it's just, at this point, it's just people from our generation getting into the revivals and the, you know, the the limited screenings and the, you know, the DVD anniversary re-releases. Like, I guess it's just, it's not, you know, and, I, and like, I have no idea what that answer is or why, but. It seems like that's all it is. And also, like, on the Bowie front, you know, we talked about his acting career and whatnot, and obviously we wish he would have done more, but uh, that's, like, kind of a thing, unless I'm just really not remembering somebody right now, but I I can't think of, like, a well-known music person right now who has, like, a legit acting career at the moment. Can you, Trev? Uh, boy... Like somebody who's like still relevant in the music scene and making films at the same time. No, I can't offhand. I mean, obviously, there's always like the classic people like Cher or whatnot, but Mm -hmm. just just you know the idea that people would go. And obviously, we talk about this all the time, but star power, actor drawing power is not what used to be anyway. But like, yeah, like it used to be, you could get drawing power off of. you know, uh, having a well-known rock star in your film, but I don't know. Well, Harry Styles is in Dunkirk, right? So we'll see where this goes. <laughs> Ed Sheeran in Game of Thrones. We'll see yeah. where it goes. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, like, and again, like, I mean, obviously Labyrinth will live on in, like, a generation's heart and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we we have to start being realistic. This is the movie graveyard for a reason, Trev. And we have to be honest that 1986, nobody won a labyrinth either. So, yeah, very sad. You know, I'm I'm just obviously I, like I said, like I love Dark Crystal. This movie to me, in my mind, is always a little bit of like the little brother of Dark Crystal because I just Dark Crystal is just full on puppets. Like, but I mean, this is like I said, like this got a lot more with all those little visual tricks that I was talking about throughout the movie, this movie actually did get a little more even creative than even Dark Crystal. So obviously I wish there would have been a third film to kind of round out like that, that puppet Henson trilogy. But uh, yeah. So Dark Crystal or Labyrinth, which one do you lean towards more? I definitely prefer Labyrinth. Um, I tried rewatching Dark Crystal a couple of years ago and found myself really bored with it. Just couldn't, yeah. uh, 
couldn't connect to it for whatever reason. I don't know if it's because there wasn't a human. I don't think it's that there wasn't a human main character. Cause it's not like I'm no. super compelled by yeah. Sarah in this or anything. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just uh, it, it didn't grab me as much as I, I hoped it would on a rewatch. Yeah. No, yeah, I definitely feel like the dragging parts in. Actually, I feel the dragging parts in both movies. To be honest with you, but I just like I said, I just love all the artistry that's going on and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we could sit here and talk about Bowie more and more, but we'll just save it for another time when we talk about, you know, the little greedy incident or whatever we end up talking <laughs> about. But uh, thanks, everybody. I'm glad everybody, you know, hopefully made it into 2018 safe and sound. Um, just still coming to, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're probably in this boat too, Trev, just still coming to the grips with the loss of David Bowie and just... Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's like, because he released the album, right? Like when he passed. So like. Yeah, like the day before. Yeah. So it's like really like around this time is the time we should be getting a new Bowie record or something, you know? So it's just, I don't know, just, just weird. So I'm glad we could, you know, talk about him, you know, and release this episode, you know, for his birthday and whatnot and uh, just celebrate him a little bit because. We lose a we lose a lot of celebrities nowadays, we you know, and, and I mean people like so that's just because there are more celebrities, right? I'm not one of those like everyone's like, oh my god, I can't believe this year's kid. It's just like no, we've let more people become famous, so it it's always gonna feel like that. But uh, but he was definitely one of the ones where the world feels a little less interesting when he's not in it, right? You know, and you know, like right now, uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit before. I think it, right now the. The, the the kids of the 70s and 80s are just are are starting to really lose their heroes you know what i mean the mm-hmm. people that when they grew up the people were already established legendary iconic stars and probably in the next 3 to 4 years the 90s kids will start getting that too you know what i mean yeah yeah. So, yeah, but I think it's like really important for like our generation, and I think it's it's it is happening. I think it's important to keep Bowie relevant, right? And to keep passing him on to the next generation. I mean, you look at what's happening in today in the world, and you know, not to get on a soapbox or anything, but with all this like you know talk of gender identity and gender fluidity and everything, it's it's super important for Bowie to still be out there as an as an icon and a hero for people to look at, um, because oh, you know the, the the best thing about Bowie is that. He made it. Okay, he always made it okay to be an outsider and to right. be the weirdo. And I think that's what everyone really felt connected to. And I think that's when when he when he passed. It was one of those. You always knew it was going to be a big deal when he passed, but it it just felt like man, I don't know if people were expecting it to hurt as much as it did. Yeah. And I think that was the thing was like, oh yeah, he was like the ultimate representative of like the outsider and uh, the person who doesn't fit in. And uh, so it's it's really important, I think, for every generation to know about Bowie and to keep connecting to it. I agree with that 100 percent. And I just I don't think there's anything else we can say. Everybody, thank you for listening and we'll see you again soon. Ninety percent of the time I've, I've only ever taken a role on. Firstly, it's a reasonably good role, uh, but, but primarily because of the director involved, because I wanted to see how he worked uh, and, and, and what his chemistry was with the relationships with his crew, how, how he put things together. Um, and that applies to just about every director that I've worked with, really. Uh,
uh, that's a thread. Mm -hmm. Character threads, I don't know. I like, I like characters that are just slightly off the wall, I think. I kind of, I kind of felt very at one with the sneaky little gangster guy in uh, Into the Night, the cameo thing that I did for John Landis. I've, I've got great empathy with that character. <laughs> Um, the least like me, I guess, I hope, anyway, is uh, um, The Hunger. I felt very uncomfortable with that role, although I loved being involved in a Tony Scott movie. I thought Tony was tremendous, absolutely tremendous. And his second film being Top Gun, I thought, why did you give me your first film, Tony? <laughs> David, you've left your characters behind, but a lot of your fans are still locked in them. Do you feel any sense of responsibility to them? To the characters? To the fans. To the characters more than the fans. Um, I think the fans have their own roads to go in life. I think they're quite capable of dealing with it. Um, my concern is the characters that I write and the stories that I write about. Do you think the fans are capable of dealing with it? But are you putting... Um... There are other fellow human beings. They're quite as capable as I am. I'm sure they know. <laughs> are you attributing to them the same degree of intelligence that you've got? Intelligence as... Um... That's, that's, that, that's not necessary in, in what I do. It's what I do. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has to do with just a, um, an interest in, in observing different kinds of societies. Um, I think you just have to be a sort of a social animal to be a writer. And where's the path going to go? Still in music or more into films that you've been doing recently? Um, I've tended to stereotype myself as a, a generalist. Um, so that I may have the freedom of movement in, from one field to another quite easily. Um, so I would, I would extend myself to films. Um, I would extend myself more into painting, which is something I had dropped up until a couple of years ago. But I picked up the shreds and started, found my acrylics and started painting again. Um, I don't really know what else I want to do other than that. I'm quite happy. Travelling, I think. I like travelling an awful lot. <laughs>